Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of the series universe. My name is Aramithius, and today we're discussing something that probably should have been discussed as part of last episode. There is a huge variety of deities worshipped across Tamriel, and having looked into what shapes many of these beings, today we're asking, what actually is a god in the Elder Scrolls universe? Before we begin, the usual disclaimer, I'd just like to remind everyone that this is my own understanding of the ideas that I'm talking about, and not necessarily the whole truth of the matter, although I'll do my best to bring in any other viewpoints as well. You may have other ideas, and if so, I'd absolutely love to hear them. Please leave a comment on the blog post that's accompanying this cast at writteninuncertainty.wordpress.com, or join the conversation at the Written in Uncertainty Discord server. It's also worth noting that the blog post also contains all the references that I'll be talking through here, so if you want to check out where I'm getting my ideas from, rather than taking what I say at face value, please check out the blog post. So, what is a god in the Elder Scrolls? This is one of those questions that will give you entirely different answers depending on who you ask and as a result there's not really a single answer or at least not one that's markedly different from the question. The closest answer that we can get to something that will satisfy everyone is if it's worshipped as a god in Tamriel it's a god. This ties into what we were talking about last time, the idea of myth-making and myth-altering as part of how the Arabis and the Etarda work in the Elder Scrolls. However, we don't need Mythopoeia to talk about what constitutes a god as such. We've got several instances where figures that aren't affected by Mythopoeia have been declared gods either by themselves or others. Um, With that definition in mind, I'm going to be looking at the various ways in which the inhabitants of Mundus and fans of the Elder Scrolls have categorised gods in various ways, what makes them acceptable and what isn't. The first and most obvious definition of a deity for most people is whether something is an etada, whether something is an original spirit that was around at the time of Mundus's creation. This has been used as the definition of gods and demons within the series, with the Aedra being gods and the Daedra being the demons and the Magnagi occasionally coming in somewhere. Most races on Tamriel worship one or other of these groups and consider them gods, although they will argue about what beings should be considered in or out of each group. The Aedra are the most usual candidates for this, with each race putting different emphases on different Aedra. The Manish races and the Altmer and Bosma have a core of eight, who are considered to be the ones that hold together Mundus, as well as a smattering of other more culture-specific deities. These other deities are referred to as culture heroes or culture gods in a few places, most obviously varieties of faith. Whether these are Aedra depends on who you ask, but it's probably worth pointing out that it's not precisely god worship as it's encountered in this world, or at least not the way that most people within the English-speaking world think about gods, even when we are talking about 
the Adra. The term Adra literally means our ancestors to Myrrh, which means that they will also include gods like Cerebane, Xarces, and Finaster, who appear simply to be Myrrh, who did a variety of god deeds for the Myrrhish people, typically the Altmer, rather than having a huge role to play in the creation of Mundus and running Mundus. And we'll talk a little bit more about this kind of god later when we have the mannish idea of the Adra, which is generally called the divines. The two terms are used reasonably synonymously by the fandom. I personally don't like it because it means that you lose the edge that you get on the Moorish origin of the term Adra, but that's the way it tends to be used. The divines are a small group of Adra and as a result, they kind of overlap. The other kind of Etada that most frequently gets worshipped are the Daedra. The most obvious worshippers of the Daedra are the Chimer and later the Dunma, um, who have historically worshipped them because they led them to Morrowind, did an awful lot of stuff for them, um, and generally supported their culture but they are also worshipped by various scattered groups throughout Temriel. These are typically worshipped based on the claim that the Daedra are more powerful or more present in the world than the Aedra, or that they have the best interests of their worshippers at heart. This is generally because the Aedra are seen as distant, as impersonal, and not really very involved. Even the worshippers of the Aedra or the Divines will freely admit that. It says in the book Reflections on Cult Worship that one of the key differences between the way that worship is carried out in Cyrodiil and the way that it's carried out in Morrowind is that the Dunmer expect a much more personal and intimate relationship with their gods compared to the more transactional and distant and kind of dignified in the way they put it across way that the imperial gods of Cyrodiil are worshipped. These sorts of differences means that worship of Aedra or Daedra is typically exclusive with worshippers of one group not including the other in their approved pantheons. However, they are acknowledged to a degree by some. The Divines Faith of the Empire focuses on a small group of Aedra as the Divines, but includes the Daedra as the acceptable blasphemies, accepting their status as powerful entities that can be worshipped, even if it's not socially or maybe legally acceptable to do so. It's certainly legal to worship the Daedra in the fourth era in Tamriel. It's not 100% clear whether Daedra worship was always legal, and even where it is legal, it's generally socially frowned upon. And we do, however, have one group that considers worship of both Aedra and Daedra as being the appropriate way to do things, which is the Sijic Order. This group considers that Aedra and Daedra are simply those ancestors that did great things. The book The Old Ways, which talks about the Sijic outlook on the world, says this. 
What, after all, is the origin of these spiritual forces that move the invisible strings of Mundus? Any neophyte of our Taem knows that these spirits are our ancestors, and that, while living, they too were bewildered by the spirits of their ancestors, and so on back to the original Akarii. The Daedra and gods to whom the common people turn are no more than the spirits of superior men and women whose power and passion granted them great influence in the afterworld. The worship of the Aedra that comprised the typical Moorish pantheons in preference to this let's worship everyone attitude was the driving force in the separation of the Sijiks from the other inhabitants of the Somerset Isles and these other inhabitants began to focus on a small group that would later become the Aedra. What's the key difference here? It's that some did great deeds that were worthy of emulation or admiration, and others did not. The third edition of the Pocket Guide to the Empire says this in relation to how the worship of the Ultima changed. The religion of the people also changed because of this change in society. No longer did the Ultima worship their own ancestors, but the ancestors of their betters, Oriel, Trinomac, Sarabane, and Finaster are among the many ancestor spirits who became gods. A group of elders rebelled against this trend, calling themselves the Sijiks, the keepers of the old ways of Aldmeris. These betters became the Aedra, but are presented here as a preferable set of ancestors, which almost goes against the traditional Aedra-Daedra narrative. The Aedra aren't just ancestors, but a select group of ancestors that are worthy of worship because they achieved noteworthy things. This telling makes the Aedra, and thus the Divines, cultural hero gods of the Ultima in a way. But what does this actually make them? Are they original spirits or are they deified mortals? It's fuzzy and the Ultima treated them as both in a way, particularly if you look at how they consider Oriel, who they desperately try to link all their genealogies back to. He was the original spirit that agreed to let Lokan create the mortal realm, and so is the ultimate point of origin for all of Mur in some way. And so he, not only did he do great things in leading armies against Lokan, but also became the progenitor of everyone. And but, however, while deified mortals are common in the Elder Scrolls, they typically have a lesser status than the Etada. When you look at how the Ultima view their pantheon, Cerebane and Finaster and that side of it, who are very definitely deified mortals, are less popular, less prevalent in the culture than those spirits who have always been associated with the original spirits. And so far, we haven't really discussed the Magna Gay, those Etada that signed up to help Lorcan with Mundus, but then ran when they realised it would cost them a big part of their being. Magnus is part of the Altmuri and Bretonic pantheons as the god of magic and sorcery, but beyond this association, there isn't much worship of the Magna Gay in mainstream Tamrelic faiths. The only references that we do have to worship of the Magna Gay is the mythic dawn in the Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion. 
we'll go over the roles of the constellations and similar in another episode but despite their place as etada they stand as the only class that aren't really worshipped on tamriel magnus is the only one that's explicitly connected with mundus at all and that may well be why he's the only one that's worshipped in any way shape or form and subjects of worship that aren't part of the original spirits are typically called cultural hero gods or something like that when you're looking at comparative religion in tamriel whether they are actually gods is a little uncertain the most prominent example of this that we have is talos who the fourth era old murray dominion are very determined to say is not a god but also includes figures like the dunmurray tribunal who were declared false gods through the dunmurray religious reformation in the fourth era and while we can say that talos is a divine what does that mean for his current status is he really anywhere we don't honestly have a straight answer to that and there are some considerations that at least for talos and vivek they've completed one of the walking ways which makes them a little different from the other deified mortals and culture heroes that are presented when talking about all these different faiths You'll hear the term apotheosis used as a way of describing this, which is the general term for a mortal becoming a god, but these kinds of figures are not universally accepted as gods throughout Tamriel. Whether they are is generally dependent on their culture, and whether the figures in question do things for that culture, and whether what they've done, whether those walking ways actually change the status to make them a god, is still quite an open question it certainly changes what individuals are capable of certainly potentially has implications for their mortality although not in all cases it seems so it's a little difficult to pin down whether the walking ways like chim really make you a god or mantling really make you a god in the sense of putting you into a position to be worshipped. Mantling is generally an exception here because it's you taking the place of something that previously had quite a strong place within the Arabis usually and so generally someone will consider that a god somewhere but it's not the process itself that makes you a god. The walking ways change your nature but again exactly whether that makes you a god depends on who you ask. Several fans of the Elder Scrolls will rate the divine status of a mortal on whether or not there are game effects that can be derived from their worship at shrines. This is certainly a common defence of Talos being a god. However, this is questionable at best in my opinion, as we can see shrines to Dunmer Saints also giving mechanical bonuses in the Elder Scrolls 3. The quest Blood of the Divine in the Elder Scrolls IV Oblivion requires the blood of a god, which the translated Mysterium Xarxes describes as the Tinder of Anu. This means that Talos' ascension potentially changed his nature to become something like the Aedra. Uh, the Tribunal, Raman, Morahouse, and other Dunmurray or Manish hero gods don't have this claim, which is why Talos 
is a special case, as well as being quite a big focus in the Elder Scrolls V. This makes him a figure that is similar to a pneumatic in Gnostic belief, a spirit that has transcended the material world. However, this feels a little different even when we look at other deified mortals, because we don't have any indications that Vivek, for example, the other possible achiever of Chim, became an Etarda. It's again back to whether things change your nature or not, and what that means. Because, because while Chim allows a vision of the Arabis and what lies beyond it, it doesn't seem to automatically make that person part of any higher order. It could be said that Chim makes you godlike, but not exactly a god. So are we to consider that becoming an Etarda, going back up the creational chains, if you like, qualifies someone as a god? If descent itself were enough, if descent from the gods itself were enough, then most Myrrh would consider that they would be gods, but they don't. I think the common line here is being able to subgradiate. Subgradience is a process whereby a being self-reflects and creates an independent being from their own substance. The Alt-Murray monomyth describes it like this. Anu encompassed and encompasses all things. So that he might know himself, he created Anuiel, his soul and the soul of all things. Anuiel, as all souls, was given to self-reflection, and for this he needed to differentiate between his forms, attributes and intellects. Thus was born Sithis, who was the sum of all the limitations Anuiel would utilise to ponder himself. Anuiel, who was the soul of all things, therefore became many things, and this interplay was and is the Arabis. At first, the Arabis was turbulent and confusing, as Anuiel's ruminations went on without design. Aspects of the Arabis then asked for a schedule to follow, or procedures whereby they might enjoy themselves a little longer outside of perfect knowledge. So that he might know himself this way too, Anu created Oriel, the soul of his soul. This is a process that's common in various strains of Gnosticism, the idea of the aeons emanating from the Godhead, which in turn have other beings and ideas sourced within themselves. Mortals don't have beings within themselves in the same way, and so by some definitions wouldn't qualify as a god. It's a rough benchmark but there, but it's something close to a way to encompass all bits of the Etarda without being picky about precisely who you're descended from or not. And However, although you can define gods as beings that subgradiate, there are relatively few cultures that directly revere the original Anu-Padme duality that creates the Arabis in the first place, which seems a little weird if you're going to make subgradients the premise on which to base divinity. In particular, none venerate Anu or Anuiel directly, although their role in creation is very often acknowledged. You'll hear the phrase, the will of Anuiel, mentioned in a few places, but this isn't really described as the will of a conscious being. Frustus of Elnir claims that when a high elf says that she advocates the will of Anuiel, this is a flat, just a flowery elvish way of saying that she wants to make up new rules for others to follow. 
the unlicensed Numantia intercept text uses the term to describe the worldview of the Ultima as being to advocate the will of Anu, but doesn't say quite what that is. Most of the inhabitants of Tamriel seem to consider Anu and Padme as cosmic forces of order and chaos, and not really personified gods, and so not worshipped for the most part. The big exception to this is Sithis, which is described in general terms in this way. In most cultures, Anuiel is honoured for his part in the interplay that creates the world, but Sithis is held in highest esteem because he's the one that causes the reaction. Sithis is thus the original creator, an entity who intrinsically causes change without design. Most cultures and organisations don't hold Sithis in high regard as an object of worship, although some elements of Dunma society during the tribunal period did respect him, and Vivek in particular describes Sithis as the start of all true houses. And a similar term is used in the book Sithis, which implies that Vivek is perhaps the author of that book. This book gives Sithis the role as prime mover of creation, in line with a few other things, but this is still in line with it being a cosmic force rather than a god as such. There are, however, two groups that worship Sithis directly, Argonians and the Dark Brotherhood. Argonians view Sithis as a protector, although the biggest text we have on this, Children of the Root, never actually uses the name Sithis. It's a little different to worship as such, although this seems to vary by tribe. The book comes from the oral traditions of Merkmire, and the Shadowfen Argonians refer to Sithis directly as a father, because it's the producer of change, similar to how it's revered in general as the original creator in quite a few sources. The Dark Brotherhood, on the other hand, sees Sithis as an entity that speaks and is active, which is more reminiscent of the Aedra and Daedra than the higher gradient beings. The Brotherhood doesn't exactly have a detailed theology, but Sithis in this context seems to be linked to being both the original creator, the Dark Father, and the Void, where he lives being the deserved end of all things. This is markedly at odds with how the afterlife and how Sithis as a force are both perceived. And so you've got several fans considering that the Sithis of the Dark Brotherhood is not actually Sithis, it's actually something else. And you'll get the typical answers of it either being Mephala or Vivek mucking about with the Brotherhood in some way, shape or form but I will go through those ideas in a bit more detail in another podcast. So, we have these, this idea of points of origin in general being revered, whether that's first mover or ancestor. However, these aren't necessarily direct relations, and there's no clear god material, so to speak. There's not much of a way of telling what's a god just by looking at it in some ways. What each culture considers a god is more reflective of what each culture values and how the world is perceived by that culture. Those perceptions also inform the way that the same gods and spirits are viewed by different cultures. 
tying into the discussion of mythopoeia we had last time, different cultures will tell different stories, which will create different perceptions of spirits, which will potentially split the perceptions of spirits themselves, creating different archetypes and so on. These attributes will produce different names and characters based on the stories that are told about these entities. The Aedra seem to be particularly susceptible to this, as they aren't that inclined or able to change whatever stories have been constructed about them, whereas the Daedra can take a more active role in affecting their own stories. And in this case, this may also ultimately create truths that shape the gods themselves. As I said last time, this isn't necessarily the same thing as belief or faith making or shaping gods, but one that puts storytelling and story construction and myth as the prime agent. This even affects the gods that aren't Etarda, as Vivek makes very clear. The warrior poet writes her own history in the 36 lessons, and we have very little way of knowing whether or not this was actually the case. Did she rewrite the events of that history, or just tell outrageous stories about it? The lines are blurred, as is the nature of divinity in the Elder Scrolls in general. I won't go into specific examples here, as they're in-depth enough they probably deserve their own episodes at some point, as in terms of how each god has fragmented and changed and shifted, and all the various connections that can be made there. The key for now is that gods typically have different manifestations and that these are generally either real or might as well be. And that's pretty much the key takeaway here. Gods are what people make of them in the Elder Scrolls. There's no hard and fast rules and the perception of those gods is close, either close to reality or making that reality. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to listen to this podcast, and if you liked it, please subscribe on your favourite podcatcher, I'm now on most of the ones out there, and if you fancy a chat, please join the discussion on the Written and Uncertainty Discord. One final note before I go, um, I'm also creating a list of some of the best long-form essays on the Elder Scrolls lore that are out there. If you have any that you think should be in there, please let me know and check out the existing ones at writteninuncertainty.wordpress.com forward slash lore-essays-resources. And next time, having looked at the nature of godhood and what it means and how it works, we'll be looking at a very specific sort of god, sort of family, sort of plant. Next time, we're asking, what actually are the hist? Until then... This podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky. Check them out on SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and I'll see you next time.